page 14. Esther Roper, Eva Gore Booth and Urania by Jill Mountford. Esther Roper and Eva Gore Booth had lived and worked together for 20 years when they, along with three others, launched their magazine Urania. It was 1916, the middle of the First World War. Less than three months earlier, 485 people had been killed in the Easter Rising in Dublin and Eva's sister, Constance Markiewicz, had escaped execution for her part in the rebellion on the grounds of her sex. Urania, however, was not an outlet for Esther and Eva's anti-war activism, nor was it a magazine targeting the tens of thousands of working-class women they had organised with in the suffrage and trade union movements over the previous two decades. Instead, Urania was a magazine seeking to challenge the idea that gender is fixed and to confront the constraints of the gender binary, heterosexual marriage and conformity to gender stereotypes. It promoted the idea that we should strive for an ideal gender, an androgyny that comprises the best characteristics of both genders. The women's movement in the early part of the 20th century was made up of radical socialist and bourgeois feminists and was increasingly rich and varied in its perspectives on women's inequality. Though the mainstream of that movement was focused on the right to vote and challenging inequality in the workplace, there had been consistent discussion in many different feminist publications around the construction of gender and the role it plays in women's oppression. Urania, however, stands out as especially radical and pioneering. The magazine celebrated love between women, same-sex marriage and cross-dressing. It derided heterosexual marriage and argued that society should discard sex, meaning not just gender but the act of heterosexual sex and by implication all sex, arguing for a spiritual romantic friendship above animalistic sex. In the 1930s it covered sex change stories. When the champion athlete Mary Weston changed sex to become Mark Weston, Urania declared it as, quote, another extraordinary triumph, end quote, a stark contrast to radical feminist attitudes toward gen- transgender athletes today. The article goes on to argue that it is further proof that, quote, sex is an accident, end quote, and, quote, no determinant of character and personality, end quote. This is progressive and rare, if not unique, for the time. The title of the magazine, Urania, is interesting. The word Uranian is used by Edward Carpenter, socialist gay rights campaigner and mystic, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, to mean, quote, those whose lives and activities are inspired by genuine friendship or love for their own sex, close quote. Eva particularly was increasingly taking on a mystic view of the world by 1916, and, like many feminists of the time, she was flirting with theosophy. She became a fully certificated member of the Theosophical Society in June 1919. 
Theosophy was a sort of New Age religion. It talked of many things, including gender fluidity through reincarnation. It promoted celibacy, arguing that love should exist on the spiritual plane rather than the physical, an idea that was increasingly expressed in articles of the magazine. Annie Besant, a well-known socialist feminist, was one of the first British feminists to get involved with theosophy in the 1890s. A couple of years later, Charlotte Despard, also a socialist feminist, gave up on Catholicism in exchange for theosophy. Olive Banks, the feminist historian, says that from a list of well-known feminists in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, around 10% got involved with theosophy at some point. Radical feminism, theosophy, vegetarianism and animal welfare united the editorial board of Urania. Irene Clyde, Dorothy Cornish and Jessie Wade were the other founder editors. Irene is often retrospectively celebrated as a transgender woman, though, no doubt because of constraints of the period, she spent her working life as Thomas Beatty. Beatty was an international lawyer and worked from 1916 as a loyal servant and apologist for the Japanese government. He lived, worked and died in Japan, aged 85. While Beatty was certainly a trailblazer in challenging the gender binary, as he put it, quote, insistent differentiation, end quote, his radicalism did not translate to a big world view. As Irene Clyde, she published a radical feminist utopian novel in 1909, Beatrice the 16th. In the early parts of the story, Irene consciously avoids the use of gender pronouns, but as the book progresses, she increasingly uses the pronoun she and celebrates feminine characteristics, the same characteristics that Urania argues are used to oppress women and portray them as inferior. Between the 1920s and 1960s, interest in feminist ideas faded, but this magazine, with all its eccentricities, kept on going. Producing four issues a year, it was distributed to a private, on request or by personal introduction, readership of around 200 to 250 worldwide, including Japan, Nepal and New Zealand. It was, however, subscribed to by four university libraries, two in the UK and two in the US suggesting a potentially greater readership than those private subscribers. The magazine was free to those interested in challenging gender conformity. None of the editors were especially energetic evangelists for the new ideal gender. There was no overall persuasive strategy of how to get from a world where insistent differentiation is a relic of the past to a world where we are all liberated from suffocating socially constructed gender norms. The best on offer was a suggestion that readers get in touch if they are interested in establishing a, quote, modern abbey, where people of our opinions could live in common, careless of the public's comments, close quote. The modern abbey 
sounds like spiritual and possibly celibate mini-utopia. The pronoun she is used when describing this paradise. Esther Roper and Eva Gore Booth had a long history of fighting for women's equality before the launch of Urania. Esther worked to exhaustion, engaging working-class women in Manchester in the fight for their right to vote. Doing work the Pankhursts WSPU would never do, Esther focused her work on working-class women and their trade unions. She was very much a suffragist, not a suffragette, although in the early years she was a mentor to Christabel Pankhurst. Eva Gore Booth was from the Anglo-Irish aristocracy. She was recruited to the fight for women's suffrage by Esther in 1896. From then on, they were barely parted. Esther and Eva worked together in Manchester, forming a highly productive working relationship with Sarah Reddish, Sarah Dickinson and Selina Cooper. In 1903, together they founded the Lancashire and Cheshire Women Textile and Other Workers Representation Committee. Esther and Eva campaigned for the rights of flower sellers, barmaids, women trapeze artists and pick-brow women to work in their trades against sexist legislation set to ban them from their industries. They set up the Barmaids Defence League and won their campaign, an inspiring and rich story to be told next time. Page 15 Tenants Organising and Feminism an interview with Joe Hiley, Acorn and Labour activist in Sheffield. Why get involved with Acorn? I've been involved with Acorn since arriving in Sheffield in late 2017. I knew they were proactively organising at a local level with something of a left analysis and wanted to get a sense of how that was working. By the time I ran for chair last year, Acorn was at an interesting point in its UK life. Following the 2019 general election result, it was considering its role as a vehicle for radical change at the national level. It had also rapidly expanded its number of branches and started looking at issues beyond the tenants' organising that it initially became known for. Having been founded as a community union, Early listening work demonstrated how important tenant and housing rights were for the UK working class, which led to a focus on that, but there had always been the intention to link that work to broader issues rather than remaining a single-issue organisation. I was really keen to be involved in that process. How has that linking to broader political issues been going? I think that remains to be seen. The shift is still ongoing. ACORN recently passed a national platform, which is exciting because it's the first time that they have done anything like that. It includes policy stances that go from workers' control to housing and the climate emergency. Crucially, members can vote for changes via a national conference. The question this raises for the organisation is to what extent ACORN creates internal space for political discussion and debate, something that many founding members and staff 
view is obstructive to a focus on direct action. Many of the early moves towards non-housing issues have come directly from community listening exercises, such as a campaign for local bus ownership or traffic calming on a particular street. Moving forward, it's unclear how listening and political reflections will interact. For example, one big listening exercise I took part in on a Sheffield estate brought up fears around safety and crime. Without a firm analysis of institutions like the police, there's a risk of taking action in a regressive direction. Acorn UK is heavily influenced by the work of Saul Alinsky, who is often associated with approaching organising as an end in itself, or the belief that identifying any issue that local people care about and organising around it is inherently radical and good. Since Alinsky's most influential book was partly intended as a disavowal of communism, we need to be wary of where that takes us. Another potential risk of this approach is that you wind up focusing on things like pedestrian crossings, which might be appreciated by the community, but at the cost of losing a radical purpose. What is the significance of ACORN? and Tenants' Organisation for Women. I think that in terms of getting women involved in political organising, ACORN shows a lot of potential, particularly given it often takes housing as a starting point. Working class women are massively disproportionately affected by housing issues, not only because they earn less through the gender pay gap, but they are much more likely to be in social housing to have soul-caring responsibilities, to spend longer at home. Women's refuges also continue to be shut and there are an increasing number of stories coming out along the lines of the sex-for-rent scandal that Acorn uncovered a few years ago. I have experience of being on a council house waiting list as a child with a single parent and growing up in the countryside the lack of investment in housing meant that we had to move 20 miles away from my other parent and from my school. That led to the usual trap where you have to spend more money and time on transport to keep your life going. One time I was door knocking in Sheffield and there was a single mother with a kid who was disabled and the councillor put him in a flat with no step-free access or storage space for his wheelchair, making him effectively housebound and obliging his mother to spend lots of time at home looking after him. The vast majority of doorstep stories I've heard along those lines have come from women, usually women without support from a partner. The point is, it's a really good issue to start with if you want to build the involvement of working-class women in politics. It's also a really good issue for connecting the issues that they are facing with wider class concerns around property ownership and exploitation. In terms of embedding that wider political perspective within ACORN, at the grassroots level there's often enthusiasm for thinking about what, for example, being anti-landlord actually means. I feel encouraged that there seems to be an increase in creative approaches to making the connection between housing and wider class structures, like the Liverpool Group, showing films about rent strikes. 
With the nationwide expansion of branches, we're seeing more experimentation and more organic connections being made between learning through direct action and learning in other ways. There's a vocal proportion of staff and national committee members who tend to discourage that sort of thing, which I think is a mistake. In terms of recruiting and involving working-class women, ACORN are doing well. They run a lot of individual member defence cases for women members, are alert to opportunities to develop confidence or responsibility, and encourage women to take prominent roles on committees or speaking to the press. As in many left-wing groups, where they occasionally fall down is in continuing that support once women activists have grown in confidence and become more likely to dissent, at which point assertiveness encounters less acceptance than men might enjoy. Understanding Emotional Labour by Eduardo Tovar The term emotional labour is now widely used in left-wing circles. Indeed, it is often stretched to mean seemingly any emotionally demanding human activity. For example, in the context of student activism, one might hear it used to denote the act of suppressing personal frustration whilst explaining an experienced aspect of oppression to others. Such use of emotional labour extends the concept far beyond what Arlie Russell Hochschild meant when she coined the term in her 1983 book The Managed Heart, Commercialization of Human Feeling, now a classic text in the sociology of emotions. To be clear, this is not simply a difference between lay and professional uses of the term. Many social scientists have pushed emotional labour's conceptual boundaries over the decades. Nevertheless, I believe that expanding the notion of emotional labour significantly beyond its original contours risks losing much of what made it analytically useful to begin with. Specifically, Hochschild used emotional labour to denote, quote, the management of feeling to create a publicly observable facial and body, bodily display, end quote, that is, quote, sold for a wage and therefore has exchange value, end quote. Such labour, open quote, requires one to induce or suppress feeling in order to sustain the outward countenance that produces a proper state of mind in others, and it sometimes draws on a source of self that we honour as deep and integral to our individuality, close quote. In other words, emotional labour frequently involves a certain estrangement from an aspect of oneself. This recalls Eric Fromm's remark in Marx's concept of man that the salesman might be, open quote, even more alienated today than the skilled manual worker because he is forced to sell his personality, his smile, his opinions in the bargain, close quote. Hochschild formulated the concept of emotional labour in the course of her empirical research on workers whose occupations require them to learn and use emotional management techniques. She especially draws on her detailed case study of flight attendants, whose gender ratio at the time 
is even more disproportionately female than it is today. Many of the book's most insightful moments are in its examination of one, the often hidden personal costs of regularly managing one's emotions for commercial purposes, and two, the inventive strategies workers employ to cope with these costs. Open quote. Among themselves, flight attendants build up an alternative way of experiencing a smile or the word girl, a way that involves anger and joking and mutual support on the job. And in their private lives, driving back home on the freeway, talking quietly with a loved one, sorting it out in the occasional intimacy of a worker-to-worker talk, they separate the company's meaning of anger from their own meaning, the company rules of feeling from their own. They try to reclaim the managed heart. Close quote. Despite Hochschild's use of Marxian terminology, her direct inspiration came from the work of the American sociologist C. Wright Mills, especially his 1951 book, White Collar, The American Middle Classes. Still, one can understand why the concept of emotional labour is important to Marxist and feminist writers. Women are overrepresented in service jobs that demand friendliness and deference to customers. In occupations where the self-management of feeling is not part of one's regular work, women's additional emotional labour tends to go unremunerated, which partly contributes to the gender pay gap. In both cases, this is because of the sexist assumption that, as women are just better at emotions, it is natural for women to perform emotional labour, especially where it involves care or empathy. Far from reflecting an inherent predisposition or skill, the way that women are disproportionately expected to be emotional managers is itself part of the social construction of gender. In Hochschild's terminology, the act of regulating one's emotions in a private setting without a wage and without producing exchange value is emotion work rather than emotional labour. This can occur in ritualistic situations where the participant is expected to feel a certain way, such as when a bride internally prompts herself to feel happy at her wedding. Emotion work is also commonly performed when trying to maintain relationships, including in the household. This brings us back to the issue of extending the boundaries of emotional labour into what Hochschild instead termed emotion work. Emotional labour justifiably has some conceptual elasticity. Firstly, there are occupations such as fashion modelling, where one is often compelled to continue honing job-related emotional management techniques far beyond one's working hours because one's employability depends on it. Secondly, one could argue that even where there is no direct link between the management of one's emotions and the production of exchange value, private emotion work is still central to capitalism. It is part of the process that enables the workforce to turn up at work each day to generate profit and should therefore be considered labour. 
One could conceptualise this in terms of emotion work producing exchange value indirectly or in terms of emotion work reproducing the capital relation. Thirdly, dependence on one's partner or family for shelter, finances etc. creates a strong compulsion to manage one's emotions in both the household and the workplace. Women are especially likely to experience this. One sees it in cases of male-to-female domestic violence, where women make themselves focus on their abusive partner's positive side in order to preserve their relationship and, by extension, their material security. Nevertheless, the conceptual elasticity of emotional labour should have limits. The more one stretches emotional labour to cover any activity involving emotional exertion, the more it obscures the very kind of exploitation, alienation and dependency under capitalism that the term was supposed to highlight in the first place. As for the suggestion that all emotion management should be considered labour because it is central to capitalism, this conflates the act of producing the preconditions for value creation with the act of value creation itself. Such conflation obscures how, by bringing workers together at the point of production and giving them common material interests, wage labour in the workplace, including waged emotional labour, produces a collective subject in a way that private emotion work performed in isolation cannot. Additionally, the conceptual overstretching of emotional labour can easily serve as a cynical excuse for derogations of responsibility in the context of political organising. That is, it makes it easier for activists to refuse to perform an agreed task that they find taxing or unpleasant by hyperbolically claiming it to be emotional labour. In the decades since the Managed Hearts publication, we have seen the growth of new jobs in the care sector and the emergence of a marketised private life in the space between home and work, where family tasks are increasingly outsourced commercially. All this raises pressing questions for us as socialist feminists and labour organisers. More than ever, emotional labour is a crucial instrument in our conceptual toolkit, but we should always exercise informed judgment as to whether it is the appropriate tool for the job. Arlie Russell Hochschild, The Managed Heart Commercialization of Human Feeling, is from University of California Press, 2012. For a recent interview with Hochschild on the conceptual stretching of emotional labour and what she now thinks is and is not emotional labour, see Julie Beck, The Concept Creep of Emotional Labour, in The Atlantic, 26th of November, 2018. HTTPS colon forward slash forward slash bit dot ly forward slash 3c2 uppercase u uppercase s 7 lowercase w page 17 wages for immigration by kathy nugent 
This article responds to Ashley J. Borer's article, Wages for Immigration, Spectre, Spring 2020. Social reproduction theory, in brackets SRT, is a theoretical framework for all kinds of work that reproduces capitalist accumulation at different levels, often for free within the home, but also on the cheap. It asks, why do women still do most of the housework? Why are some jobs, typically women's jobs, so badly paid? SRT argues that maintaining structures of inequality and social institutions such as the nuclear family are useful to capitalist accumulation. For example, child labour has been illegal for some time in the developed world and children no longer help make profit. Instead, they need to be fed and cared for into adulthood. The problem of lack of productivity can be minimised if this care work is squeezed out of parents, usually mothers, at cost to the family, or badly paid nannies, nursery workers and school workers. Ashley J. Borer's article, Wages for Immigration, argues that immigration is a form of social reproduction. In contrast to the more common position that immigration and anti-migrant racism create the conditions for a system of highly racialized social reproduction, in which, for example, low-paid domestic work is predominantly done by black and brown people for well-off white people. SRT understands acts of childcare as central to the reproduction of the next generation of workers or, quote, generational replacement. Borer argues that this work is often viewed too narrowly as only the, quote, work of sexual and domestic reproduction, gestating, bearing and rearing working class children, along with all the physical and emotional labour this process requires, close quote. Bora argues that childbearing in the first world capitalist societies like the US has become less common. Women are having fewer children than earlier generations and are not replacing the workforce in sufficient numbers. Immigration instead is fulfilling the replacement need of capitalism. She points out that the US migrants and their US born children account for 88% of population growth. All of the exertions and tribulations associated with immigration, upending one's life and livelihood, and the often harrowing challenges faced when crossing borders, should be, according to Bora, understood as labour, as human beings acting on the world and transforming it. This experience of making oneself a migrant shapes the future social and economic conditions in which migrants find themselves and, in a world of border controls and work visas, mass immigration means large numbers of undocumented and precarious workers, many of them subject to especially harsh exploitation. The more undocumented people there are in an economy, the more surplus labour can be extracted, as bosses can drive down pay and conditions with little fear of unionisation or industrial action. 
Bora raises the important point that immigration challenges the view held by many social reproduction theorists that the continued primacy of the nuclear family is crucial to generating unpaid social reproductive labour. Immigration breaks up nuclear families. Individuals leave their native countries to find work in higher wage economies. Dependent family members are sent to live with relatives when parents migrate. Deportees are forced apart from partners and children. Overall, Bora aims for a more nuanced reading of both immigration and social reproduction, and these are definitely interesting arguments. I don't think she quite succeeds, however. She fails to make a sustained case for immigration as generational replacement on two counts. 1. Generational replacement within the family under capitalism is never just about the replacement of bodies, but also about ideological conditioning, setting up patterns of atomization, breaking up possibilities of wider social solidarity. 2. The relationship between immigration and modern capitalism is complicated by racist and xenophobic politics, which are not always in line with the immediate economic needs of the capitalist class. The drive to close borders and deport immigrant communities is popular in spite of the usefulness of cheap migrant labour, for instance. Bora ends her article by raising the demand for wages for immigration, adopting the Wages for slogan popularised by the Wages for Housework campaign in the 1970s. The Wages for Housework demand sought to call attention to unpaid, undervalued work in the home. Similarly, Bora argues that Marxist feminists must call for migrants to be remunerated for the work of making themselves migrants. The demand is ultimately an engagement in polemic and rhetoric, raised in order to expose what is bad about the systems of exploitation and oppression under which we live. It is a utopian demand, not concerned with how it might be implemented, which begs the question of how it can take the struggle one step, another step, the many steps forward needed to dismantle those systems. While we do sometimes need to dramatise exploitation and oppression, more than anything we need to build the labour movement and raise demands for such things as the closure of all detention centres, the abolition of immigration controls. These are hard struggles to win, especially as we have lost on Brexit, that needs solid, detailed arguments. Page 18. Pregnancy, Abortion and the Women's Strike by Kelly Rogers A response to Sophie Lewis, Full Surrogacy Now, Feminism Against the Family, published by Verso in 2019. At the heart of Sophie Lewis's 2019 book, Full Surrogacy Now, is the argument that gestation or pregnancy is work. Much like advocates of wages for housework, who she refers to extensively, she argues that by reproducing the workforce, very literally, pregnancy and childbirth are a fundamental part of value creation, of capitalist accumulation. 
Pregnancy and childbirth should therefore a be considered labour in the Marxist sense and b be viewed as an urgent site of struggle against capitalism. The analogy continues when Lewis raises the demand quote, wages for gestators. This, she explains, is not a naturally desired outcome, but a provocation. She writes, open quote, We aren't literally totting up a bill when we utter our stick em up, claiming the wages due for centuries of baby-making. We are demanding everything. That, not some pragmatic state-implemented basic income program for families, is the point of serving notice to the expropriators. Wages for all gestation work is not a petition and it does not describe an exciting destination. It describes a process of assault on wage society. It's a noir joke, a provocation, an insurgent orientation intended to expose the ludicrousness of treating work as the basis for receiving greater or smaller amounts of the means of survival. End quote. Going on strike. Lewis underpins her argument with an uncontroversial assessment of the commercial surrogacy industry. Commercial surrogacy, unlike unpaid housework or unpaid pregnancy, directly makes profit for the employer and surrogates are straightforwardly exploited workers. They receive a wage which is less than the product of their labour is worth and their conditions are dictated by their contract of employment. These wages and conditions are very often especially poor. Lewis describes how surrogates are expected to adhere to strict health routines and to live in housing away from their families. They often don't bring the baby to term, but are booked in for a caesarean section at the convenience of the clients. If gestation is work, then how do these workers go on strike? The answer, Lewis argues, is simple, abortion. Surrogates ultimately have the power to withdraw their labour by terminating their pregnancies. Lewis gives examples of surrogates threatening to abort unless they are given permission to see their families. At this point, however, readers are expected to make a rather extraordinary leap and accept that if commercial surrogates can strike for better conditions, then so can any pregnant person. Gestators in general can strike to better their lives, and when they do, they strike a blow against the oppressive constraints of the nuclear family under capitalism. The women strike. On 24th of October 1975, 90% of women in Iceland went on strike to protest the gender pay gap and discriminatory employment practices. They did not go to their paid jobs and left housework and childcare to the men. Fathers were forced to take their children into work and employers ended up providing crayons and sweets. Certain industries, such as fish factories, shut down entirely for the day. Iceland passed a law guaranteeing equal pay the following year. Inspired by this action, the women's strike has been adopted by activists in a number of countries around the world, 
most successfully in Poland and Argentina. A limitation of the women's strike is that, for very obvious reasons, an all-out long-term strike just isn't possible. Children need looking after, and women tend to want to look after them, at least some of the time. Nevertheless, one can still see how direct actions like the Women's Day Off in Iceland or the Black Friday protests in Poland can be very effective, especially when taken up on a large scale. However, given that, generally speaking, people have children because they want to and would presumably be unwilling to have an abortion for a token action, Lewis's notion of gestational strikes ends up as little more than a rhetorical device. Perhaps I have taken Lewis too seriously on this point. After all, she explicitly says that wages for gestators is a noir joke. The same may be true of gestational strikes. But that is precisely the problem with an otherwise thought-provoking book. One of its central arguments is a not particularly convincing provocation, an intellectual exercise that offers us very little for the real-world project we have before us, overthrowing capitalism and its related systems of oppression. Page 18 Social Reproduction in Prisons by Sarah Lee At a recent Spectre Journal event, editor Charles Charlie Post pointed out that neither left-class reductionists nor liberal identitarians situate mass incarceration in the development of capitalism. Calvin John Smiley, one of the speakers, responded that intersectionality is the, quote, marrying of these different arguments into an overlapping theoretical framework, end quote. At best, intersectionality describes mass incarceration but does not explain it. The prison population is overwhelmingly black and overwhelmingly working class. But why are prisoners at the intersection of race and class? Any theoretical framework which situates mass incarceration in the development of capitalism must understand prisons as sites of social reproduction and prisoners as a reserve army of labour. What is distinct about the reserve army of labour is that its workers sell their labour power at a lower price. Under capitalism, this labour reserve is racialized not only by employers but also by workers. Workers fend off labour market competition by racialising those who are undercutting their wages. Employers sort superior workers from the inferior ones on the basis of fictional racial characteristics. As a result of racialised oppression, workers in the Reserve Army of Labour are discriminated against in employment, housing and education. And disparity in these areas is what accounts for working class people of colour being overrepresented in the prison population. But the prison population itself is a reserve army of labour because of the conditions by which it reproduces labour power. Prison labour power costs less to reproduce 
than ordinary labour power and will always serve to undercut the general wage level. While capitalism perpetuates mass incarceration through the production of racial differences, mass incarceration perpetuates capitalist relations of production through the guaranteed reproduction of a reserve army of labour. The continued existence of a scab army of labour drives wages down in the long term, provides cheap labour for the state, if not the private sector, and provides technologically backward industries the low-cost labour they need to maintain their profitability. In 2015, union-busting laws introduced by Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker coincided with the state's enlistment of prison labour to perform landscaping and maintenance tasks across the state, tasks that had historically been performed by unionised public sector employees. The effect of the deployment of prisoners as a scab army of labour is not just a downward pressure on wage levels in the public sector, but on the market price for labour more generally. As Smiley argued, even if capitalists don't hire prison labour, the public sector benefits greatly from cheap prison labour. During the pandemic, New York inmates were paid 10 to 62 cents an hour to make the state's own brand of hand sanitizer, which they reportedly were not allowed to use because the alcohol content made it contraband for prisoners. Prison labour is cheap because of how its labour power is reproduced. Outside of the context of a prison, it would not be feasible for a factory worker to be paid 10 to 62 cents an hour for manufacturing hand sanitizer. Such a low wage would not allow the worker to maintain a household where women shoulder most of the domestic labour that refreshes a worker's labour power and enables him to return to work the next day. The worker would also not be able to raise a family on that wage, which would affect the reproduction of new workers for capital. In a prison, the prisoner often performs his own domestic labour as part of a larger regime to maintain and operate the complex. The daily schedule of inmates in North Carolina gives an insight into how prisons institutionalise reproductive labour. Quote, At 3.30am, the first inmates are awakened. They are the kitchen workers who get up to prepare the morning meal. All inmate workers report to their jobs at 7.30am. Inmates work in the kitchen, licensed tag plant or laundry, or perform maintenance or janitorial tasks, close quote. Because of the unique conditions under which labour power is reproduced in a prison, prison labour becomes a reserve army of labour in its own right. It does not merely draw from a pre-existing racialized reserve army of labour. Mass incarceration enables capitalist relations of production to survive. Any anti-capitalist programme must necessarily be an anti-carceral one. Women's Fight Back 
page 19, Rent Strike by Kelly Rogers. Over recent weeks, more than 5,000 students across 45 UK universities have withheld rent payments and demanded a 40% reduction in rent, refunds for those not taking their places in halls and greater financial support for students. Sky-high rents have long been a problem for students and rent strikes have been a regular feature at university halls since 2015 when students at University College London launched the Cut the Rent campaign, winning 1.85 million in rent rebates, bursaries and rent freezes. The coronavirus pandemic, however, during which students have either been locked inside their accommodation with little or no outside support, or unable to to attend university at all, has inspired a fresh wage wave of outrage. It is also significant that they have organised the strike on such a magnificent scale at a time when normal campus activity is halted and all of the usual methods of agitation, leafleting, door knocking etc are unavailable to activists. Historically the main protagonists behind rent strikes have largely been women, tending to be the ones responsible for managing household accounts and turning the breadwinner's wages into the means to get by and very often making sacrifices themselves so their families might be a bit better fed. It was women that felt most harsh, harshly what it meant to be living on the breadline or at the mercy, mercy of unscrupulous landlords. Time and time again, they have organised their communities and their men to do something about it. To celebrate the student rent strikes of 2021, we briefly retell the story of two historic women-led rent strikes from the early 20th century. Glasgow, 1915. When the First World War began in 1914, thousands of workers descended on Glasgow to work in the shipyards and munitions factories on Clydeside. Spotting an opportunity to turn a profit in February 1915, the city's landlords informed their tenants that all rents would rise by a huge 25%, even though housing was chronically overcrowded and dilapidated. Despite recent examples of tenants' organisations, John McLean of the British Socialist Party had led the Scottish Federation of Tenants Associations to fight against rent increases and for public housing in 1913. With many men away fighting, it was felt that the housewives of Glasgow would present little resistance. How wrong they were. The Glasgow Women's Housing Association was quickly established with the support of the Independent Labour Party and Women's Labour League to protest the rent increases. And under the, under the leadership of Mary Barber and a number of other women, it became the driving force behind the largest rent strike in British history, beginning and governed the shipbuilding district on the banks of the River Clyde in early 1915. What followed was a militant campaign involving propaganda meetings, including at factory gates, rent strikes and eviction resistance. Women's committees were established which met in kitchens and would share news of forthcoming evictions. Tenants staged mass demonstrations against attempted evictions, often resulting in violent confrontations in which they would defend themselves with flower bombs and other missiles. Empty houses were picketed to prevent new tenants that had agreed to pay high rents from entering. On one occasion, when one tenant was persuaded to pay the rent increase after she was led to believe that others had already done so, Mary Barber organised thousands of women and workers from the shipyards in Govan to turn out onto the streets outside the house factor's office. The factor quickly handed the woman back her money. By November 1915, 20,000 tenants were on strike across Glasgow and rent strike activity was spreading to other parts of Scotland and the UK. The British government had little option but to bring in legislation in late 1915 which introduced rent controls. 
Although this was intended as a temporary measure, the tenants in Glasgow and elsewhere kept up the pressure with further rent strikes organised in the following decade. Rent controls would mean a part of the British housing set would remain a part of the British housing settlement until the 1988 Housing Act. The rent strike of 1915 was not a spontaneous uprising. It came at a time of rising industrial militancy. It was not long, after all, until the British government would bring tanks onto the streets of Glasgow to suppress the revolt of Red Clydeside in 1919. Mary Barber herself was also not just a housewife. She was an active socialist and member of the Independent Labour Party who campaigned on a wide range of causes, including the vote for women, women's access to birth control and maternity benefit. She also organised socialist Sunday schools, a method of educating children in the core principles of socialism, first established in the 1892 London dock strike. Lower East Side, New York City, 1907 to 8. In 1907, 20-year-old Pauline Newman, a Jewish immigrant from Lithuania, into the, into the Lower East Side in New York City, moved into a windowless, bathroomless tenement. That autumn, landlords called for a rent hike. Enlisting 400 girls and women, Newman set about organising families to demand a 20% decrease in rent. Although Newman needed to go to work during the day, they built an army of housewives that could go door to door, tenement to tenement and mobilise tenants to the cause. By late December, they had convinced 10,000 households to withhold rent and the strike began. Landlords responded by ordering evictions and shutting off the water supply to properties. Faced with the largest rent strike that New York City had ever seen, however, some landlords did agree to reduce rents, benefiting approximately 2,000 families. Moreover, out of the strike came a long-standing demand for rent controls and it would inspire decades of tenants' activism. Rent controls would be brought into effect in New York City in the late 1930s. Newman, dubbed the East Side Joan of Arc by the New York Times, would go on to be an impressive labour movement activist. In 1908, she was the Socialist Party candidate for the Secretary of State, in spite of the fact that women did not yet have the vote. She used her election campaign to advocate for women's suffrage. She organised garment workers too and was a central organiser in the uprising of the 20,000 when in November 1909 more than 20,000 Jewish immigrants, the majority young women in their late late teens or early 20s, held an 11-week general strike in New York's shirt waste industry. While the strikers won only a small portion of their demands, the action precipitated five years of struggle that would result in the garment industry becoming one of the best organised industries in the US.